have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me fill you in on a few things. Like first and foremost, it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Then Anchor is going to distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on multiple platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And it's so easy, even somebody like me can do it. Now download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And I know you hear me. Welcome back. It's episode two of I Know You Hear Me with me, Flynn Hendricks. On today's episode, we have our very first guest, and it's going to be a great one. We've got the headliner, Chris Michaels. Chris is an independent professional wrestler who's had brushes with greatness in every company you can imagine. WCW, WWF, WWE, TNA. He's even been a guest coach at the WWE Performance Center and had a hand in molding some of today's top-known WWE talents and world champions. We're going to talk about how he's dealt with injuries, with doctors telling him, you've got to hang up the boots, there's no way you can come back. If you take one more shot to the head, that's it, you're done. We're going to talk to him about what it was like getting that information and how he processed it. What it was like working with all these big-name talents but never actually getting the contract himself. We're going to talk about what it's like being a dad and making time for your kids with this busy, insane schedule. We're going to talk about what Tracy Smothers meant to him. There's going to be a lot going on here, and we're going to just dive into it, and Chris is going to give you all the details. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this. So we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors with Chris Michaels. Hey, this is Jimmy Street, host of the Live and in Color with Wolfie D podcast. Hear the life and times of professional wrestler Wolfie D. From his times in the territories with PG-13 to his times in WWE, ECW, WCW, TNA, and more. Nothing is off limits and nothing will be held back. Available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast formats. Thanks again to our sponsors. We're back here in the studio. On the line, we've got the headliner, Chris Michaels. He's been an independent professional wrestler for the better part of the last three decades, and he's been a known inspiration to not only myself, but so many in the business around this area and, gosh, even down to the WWE Performance Center. So I'm beyond excited to have him here as our first guest on the I Know You Hear Me pod. So, Chris, welcome on. Hey, thanks for having me. Man, I know it's a... I can't even think. It's been a while since we've caught up, man, but I'm, I'm glad to be talking to you again. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been quite a while. I, I can't even remember. It's, it's, what, been a couple of years, maybe? couple years, at least. I know you were actually one of my last matches before I inadvertently hung it up in uh, 2018. So that's, uh, that's saying something right there. Oh, wow. Yep, I think it was, uh, that last match was up in Franklin, actually. Uh, it was, uh... Me, Damian Wayne, and I forget the other guy against you, James Storm, and Chase Stevens. So I mean, that was a that was a good way to go out as one of the last matches there for sure. Oh yeah, wasn't that wasn't that uh, Tommy Coffee? Ah, uh, it might have been. It might have been. I've uh, man, I am drawing a blank on who it was, but you might be right. That sounds right. Yeah, it might have been. That. that was a fun night. That was that for sure was a fun night. 
But uh, yeah, good times there. Again, though, you you name everybody in that ring that we had the match with, and I can't think of one that doesn't look up to you in some way and that doesn't, you know, idolize you or come to you for advice or hope to see their name against you on the match card, you know, when you show up to a show. So what I want to do here tonight is really just get into the nuts and bolts of who you are and what makes Chris Michaels Chris Michaels and why you followed the journey that you had and how you have rose above and overcame the the objections and the adversity and the different injuries and setbacks you've had in your life and your career. So... I guess starting with the first question here, what drew you to professional wrestling? Like, what made you want to step into the business? Uh, when I was uh, really young, growing up, uh, me and my mom, my dad worked all the time, so mm-hmm. uh, my, me and my mom, we'd watch uh, Saturday morning uh, Memphis TV uh, uh, wrestling with Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. Oh the yeah, fabulous ones you name it. And, uh, it was just the past time we watched it every Saturday morning. And, uh, that, that's kind of how I got hooked or whatever. And then if they would have a, uh, a live event in driving range, sometimes uh, she would take me to, or, or, and a school buddy to go see it live. Uh, I remember one time she, uh, took me and a buddy of mine to the Nashville fairgrounds, uh, that, uh, the main event that night was Jerry Lawler versus uh, Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, I was just glued and hooked uh, from it ever since. Absolutely. And then, you know, and then, you know growing up, uh, I got into other things. Uh, uh, I was a self-taught uh, drummer, so I got into music for a while, thought I was going to be a rock star. And then uh, I was a pretty darn good baseball player, too. So I got into that, and I'd watch wrestling here and there. And then, um, then I was, uh, around 15, 16 years old. Um, I got to watch in, uh, the NWA on Saturday afternoons before I go do my nightly teenager stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course was, uh, hooked on the, got enthralled with the, uh, uh, Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat series and magic uh, ended up, ended up going to the Manisswap auditorium and watching Wrestle War 89 live and, I was wow. just hooked from there. And that's uh that's something right there too. Like I know I've seen my fair share of live events and like seeing a WrestleMania live, like you can watch it on TV, you can watch any of that stuff, but until you're actually there and you experience it, like that's just that's an adrenaline rush in itself and it's so easy to get hooked to. It's like a drug almost. Yeah, um it going that that or uh, even a concert, uh, see your favorite band live, you watch them all the time and listen to them on the radio uh, and on TV. But once you go see them live, you leave there, man, you're just so full of emotions and especially something like wrestling. If that's something you aspire to do, mm-hmm. you just leave there and you just can't describe the, the adrenaline rush that you get. So was it, was it actually attending wrestle war that made you decide like, this is what I want to do now? Or was there a, a certain match after that, that, kind of just like pulled you in and you knew that's what you had to do after that. Well, it, it wasn't so much. Um, I, I think in my head, I was like, man, if I ever got the opportunity to do this stuff, I'd, I think I'd like to try it. But, uh, what it, it was kind of an accident. I want to say, um, I had a young girl that, that had moved here to my hometown from texas mm-hmm. she was in my homeroom and um 
somehow I ended up talking to her, uh, which anyone who knew me back then knew uh, I, I didn't really talk to the girls that much. So how I, I can't remember how I engaged in conversation, but she ended up telling me that her dad was um, was a professional wrestler or former and was going to open up a wrestling school here in uh, little old Franklin, Kentucky. And I said, wow. I said, that's awesome. I'd like to talk to your dad. I love wrestling. And then I went to my mom with it, and I'm like, what are the odds of a wrestling school coming here to this town? I'm like, this is a sign, Mom. And it, it kind of led from there. I didn't like have these plans to set out to be a wrestler, but once I talked to her and knew that school was coming here, then it was a different story. Right. It's like it became more attainable at that point, and you actually had a, a starting point to start putting the feet to the pavement and get that plan in motion. Right, right. And uh, who was that wrestler? Who was that? His name was Bill Crockett. Yeah, now as far as another alias that he might have used back, I know he wrestled back in the 60s and 70s. I don't think he, you know, he was uh, mainstream or uh, was a main event guy or, and how good he was. I really don't know. Right. Which he... Um, most of his stuff from the school was all verbal. He would sit back and watch. Of course, he was pretty old and crippled up. And uh, uh, what what helped me is different. He, his son wrestled, uh, which is who I started out working with. Now he went went by the name of I think Mike Rose. Okay. But his name also was Michael Crockett. He, uh, to my knowledge, he still lives in Nashville, Tennessee. All right. And then from there, when you first started training, what was that like? Did he actually have a ring, or was it like some of the stories you hear where there may have just been old wrestling mats or an old boxing ring that was basically two-by-fours under the canvas? What was that like? No, there was this old cabinet shop uh, right here in the middle of town, uh, right beside the Wendy's, and... um, it was he had it in the upstairs part of this cabinet shop. They made cabinets and all kinds of wood crafts and stuff in the bottom part. And we would go in the double doors and go up these wood steps. It almost looked like a, and you know, Rocky One, Rocky Two scenario type thing. And once you got upstairs, it was a true legit uh, pro wrestling ring uh, with some weights and stuff around. But wow. I mean. It, it, it just had that old Tommy uh, Rocky Dungeon type feel, but I mean, it it wasn't gross or dirty or anything. Right. You know I mean? uh, but I, you know, uh, had probably the best access you could have started out with in 1989. You know. Absolutely, and I mean, just hearing you talk about that—that's better than what even some people starting within the last 10 to 12 years had access to before you know, places like Lance Storm's school opened up or the Jacobs Pritchard Wrestling Academy up in Knoxville. You just had somebody that may have had a ring or maybe just had gym mats. You didn't really know what you were walking into. So sounds like you uh, actually started off on the right foot there, which is awesome. Yeah, and you know, you hear all these horror stories how guys were stretched and beat up and, and all that. Um, they took a they took a liking to me and... Uh, Saw, I guess they saw some talent in me. I was only 16 years old, and uh, I don't want to say baby, but they they took care of me, especially his son. He he watched out for me and uh, wouldn't let nobody get too rough with me. 
I mean, I, I, I had it pretty easy breaking in. Did that cause any tension or any heat with any of the other trainees that, that were there at the school? Not that I can remember. Um, everybody that came in and out of there was always uh, uh, willing to lend a helping hand and all that. I don't I don't know if they thought that, uh, you know, just, oh, he's their boy, so we can't, can't hurt him. He's a nice kid. Or... You know, they saw something in me and uh, wanted to make sure that uh, I had every advantage that I could have. Right. How long uh, did you train before you actually had your first match and before they said that you were ready to go? Uh, I don't know an exact time, I, which I wish looking back now I'd have kept up with dates and times and uh, towns and all that. Right. But I never did. But I want to guess, I, I know it was summertime that I started, and I'm pretty sure I had, had my first match uh, in November of that year. So it was like, I would say three to five months before I had my first match. Awesome. And did you, like, when you had that first match, did you feel like the butterflies that you would get before you went through the curtain, did you feel that adrenaline rush? Were you confident? Were you nervous, anxious? What was that like? From what I can remember, of, of course, I was nervous. Mm -hmm. But then I, I was pretty comfortable, too, because uh, my very first match was against a guy that I'd worked with day in and day out at that school. Uh, his name was Eddie. Um, I can't pronounce his last name to save my life, but he went by the name of Screaming Eagle. And, ah, uh, I remember that name. I worked, I worked with him the most, and... Uh, we already had our match planned out, kind of choreographed spot for spot, uh, just so I wouldn't, you know, uh, get too out of hand as far as being nervous. and Right, so right. And uh, so we just went in there and did the match we did at the school a hundred times. So it, it was it was pretty easy for me. And what was, what was your feeling like after the fact? Like, did you feel like, man, I can't, like, I can't describe, I'm jazzed right now. Like, I just knocked that out of the park. Or were you, uh, were you like critiquing yourself after the fact? Like, oh man, I could have done this so much better. Or was it somewhere in the middle of that? I, you know, probably feeling a little bit of both. Um, you know, I, I would watch stuff back. Mm -hmm. Back then, of course, it was on VHS if somebody had a recorder. But I, uh, somewhere do in the archives have this match still on VHS and you know watch it back and you just even now I even hate to watch myself now period I understand I don't like to watch anything back but I can go back and look at some of my older stuff and you know I'm always even a match I've seen a hundred times I'm like ah dang it I should have done this there or could have done that there but uh, for, but then again on the other hand I'm like wow, I'm still in high school and I just uh, had a professional wrestling match. That's pretty damn cool. Exactly. That's that's something we're going to circle back to here in a little bit, but I know it's it's always easier to nitpick yourself and critique yourself than it is just to, to give yourself praise when it's due. I don't know why that is or if it's just ingrained in human nature, but I'm the same way and it just it irks me, but I mean doing that while you're still in high school, man, that's just, that's amazing. Like, 
did any of the kids from your school, like, did they come to the show? Did they know what was going on? Did you become, like, the cool guy at school after that? Uh, well, when I first announced it, uh, the very first, um, uh, set of people from school that I announced it to, of course, was, uh, I, I played junior varsity and varsity baseball. So mm-hmm. I announced it to the coaches that I wouldn't be participating that year. I was going to train to be a pro wrestler. So, of course, uh, majority, I, it was all laughs. And then uh, I had a couple coaches like mad at me, telling me I was wasting my time and uh, I was wasting my talent, that I was a good ball player and I should keep playing ball. And, uh, and then a lot of the other school kids, you know, mostly laughing like, okay, yeah, little old you, you're going to be a wrestler. We'll see how that works out for you, Chris. Mm-hmm. And But then um, uh, through the training school here, they brought uh, uh, Jared's Promotions here to town. Um, they put me on the show. They ran my high school gym. And uh, uh, the main event was Billy Joe Travis against Jeff Jarrett. And it was me opening up against wow. uh, Ben Jordan. Wow. Last from the uh, past. They ended up doing a story on me. uh, This uh, local paper and the school newspaper, um, FS student plans careers pro wrestler, and did a big story on me. And the high school gym sold out that night. So I was a pretty big deal for like a week or two after that at school. Right. I would imagine so. Now, when you get that kind of notoriety and you start and you get that chance on a big show like that, does that make it easier for you to start branching out and traveling to other shows after that? Or do you wait till you're older? What, what was that process like for you? I didn't really branch out and start going. I only went to where, um, Bill Crockett and them would kind of allow me to, uh, they, that, well, but it was right after that. They went up and introduced me to Dale Mann in Bowling Green, Kentucky, mm-hmm. where he ran a, a steady show on Sunday Sunday nights. And uh, and that's who, when I first stepped out of high school, that's who uh, I started working for full-time. I gotcha. So it was all shows for Dale, and then it was after I was there a while, I started branching out a little bit, hitting uh, a Tennessee town here, Tennessee town there. Right. And since you mentioned him, we actually did have a couple of uh, listener questions about Dale Mann. The first one is, like, what is the difference between promoters today and promoters of yesterday like a Dale Mann? What what would you say is the difference between them? Like, what made Dale so special? Well, you know, he he's just that old school. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, a man's man, right? You know, didn't take didn't take no shit from nobody. Um, he kept a very uh, close crew. Uh, he still believed in kayfabe. Uh, we go in a store, heels would have to wait for the baby faces to get done before they go in, or they'd have to go in a different door. Um, uh, he believed in the, you know, all of us. Uh, got in together and helped put up the ring and 
the chairs and you know we still paid our dues and um and that we look out for each other on the road if he wasn't around uh it was just closer knit and, and of course he like he like any promoter it was all about making money but you know, he looked out for us too and took care of us. And even if we had a bad night, uh, at the door, uh, he would always, uh, if the payouts wasn't good, he would always make sure he fed us or, uh, gave us a place to stay and all that. And that, that says a lot right there. Cause I know like you, you see news articles today where promoters dip out and don't even pay or whatever it may be. So the fact that he took care of you guys in that regard too, just that speaks volumes right there. Yeah, we just all like one huge family, and you know, Dale Man's the one that gave me the Michaels name and and all that. And which back then, I, you know, I embraced it. That was when uh, Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty were the Rockers, and absolutely, he did like he did like parody uh, teams. Like he had a Junior Rock and Roll Express with, um, uh, oh dang it, with Todd Morton and Rick Gibson. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then he uh, uh, he tag teamed me with uh, Ronnie Travis because we both wore at bleach blonde hair and both wore bandanas and the zebra skin stuff. And he called us the Young Rockers and he said, "Chris, we'll call you Chris Michaels." And of course, I'm like, "Okay, that's fine with me. I just want to wrestle, you know." So I went with it, and then lo and behold, Shawn Michaels becomes who he is today. Right. And, uh. Uh, fast forward to 97, I um, just got fresh off uh, USWA TV. I don't mean to jump oh, you're fine. places here, but um, it's when I started Music City Wrestling for Burt Prentice, I wanted to change that Michael's name. I'm like, let me go by my real name, you know, new fresh start, new TV and all that, and he wouldn't let me do it. He said, everybody already knows you by Michael's. So I did try to get away from it, but it didn't happen. Right. I mean, all these years later, here's, here you still are, and everybody still knows you by that name. Um, we're going to come right back for another Dale Man question here in just a second. But yep. in doing some research, and I actually found this out back when I first started you know, to get into the business, did you know that there was another Chris Michaels up around the northeastern region who worked like briefly for two or three years? Uh, I had heard of him, but uh, it got brought up to me. I, but I would say, in the, it had to have been 2000-something, but somebody said that, uh, brought up to me that our my Wikipedia is mixed with his some of his uh, stats and then some of mine. Gotcha. And that, that, that's how I heard from him. Like, it says that I'm from somewhere in New York or New Jersey and... Uh, uh, work for ECW, right, right, and this and that. But then it then it goes and lists uh, mine and Todd Morton's USWA tag team title stuff, and so it was kind of all mixed together. That's how I learned about it. But you guys never crossed paths, never happened to be on the same show together, anything like that. No, nope, never crossed paths at all. Well, that was a missed opportunity for a storyline over who gets to keep the name, but yeah, right. But uh, going back to Dale Mann there, are there any uh, any good Dale Mann stories that you could share? That's one from uh, listener Randall that he'd want to know. Um, oh, God, there's so many. But one uh, that comes to mind is the very first time I stayed the weekend up 
the home base was Jamestown, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think, I'm pretty sure I'm still in high school, so I still live at home by staying a weekend up there working for Dale. And um, I get picked up, and I, we're going out to uh, the lake where everybody hangs out and stuff. I'm like, okay, cool, that sounds like fun. So we go out to this lake, and I get to this little boardwalk thing and walk out on it. And out in the distance, I see this man. I didn't know it was Dale at first, but I see this man out in the middle of this lake out there with suds all around him. And he's taking a bath out in this lake, and he's holding his little (laughs) mirror up, and he's shaving and I said, what the hell is that? And they're like, it's Dale. He's out there taking a bath. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. Don't he have a, don't he have a shower at his house? I, I, it just blew me away. This man was taking a bath in the lake. That and, was Dale Man for you. And the crazy thing is, is like, you know, to somebody from the outside world that may hear that, they're like, how do you, like, who would do that? But in the business, there's like so many different things that you see and you hear and that we've experienced where it's just like, Oh, that's just another thing you see. Like, that's just, that's just a Thursday. So, I mean, like you just, you don't even think twice about it after that. It's insane, but it's, uh, yeah. Especially wrestling, you know, but but now I've done something, uh, stuff similar to that. Taking a bath with a water hose was the only way to rinse off and, uh, or trying to, you know, it's 200-pound man trying to stand up in a sink and, and get cleaned off, especially if you got color or something. Yeah. Anything. You know, now you just don't bat an eyelash at stuff like that anymore. Yeah, especially anything you can do after you've been in some of those rings that didn't have the uh, the cleanest mats or the cleanest facilities. So I get that 100%. Right. But, um... Just because you mentioned going from USWA, uh, going up to USWA, when did you get picked up at OVW? When did you start working there? Were you still working for um, USWA, then Music City, and then gone to OVW, or did you hop around a little bit more after that? Uh, I was still, I'm pretty sure I was still doing some dates for Bert, but I was kind of in and out, and then doing some Kentucky stuff, but... Uh, I ended up on the phone with Sean Casey once again, and this is around the uh, 99. And uh, he said, hey, Jim Cornette up here has got uh, Ohio Valley Wrestling and, you know, got this developmental deal going on. He said he's got me as the light heavyweight champion, blah, blah, blah. I think it would be a good thing if you came up. I'm like, well, yeah. And uh, got me on the phone with Cornette. Which, uh, crazy thing, uh, rewind back to 95, mm-hmm. uh, saying, same guy, have a conversation with Sean Casey, calls me up and says, uh, won't you give Jim Cornette a call? There's this huge show in Knoxville called the Super Bowl. Uh, he was wanting to use me on it, but I can't make it. I'm booked for Bobby Fulton. Won't you see if you can take my spot? So I called Cornette immediately, got on the Super Bowl show. So it ends up being me and Flash Flanagan against the Headbangers. And that was my little, little tiny run, full-time run with Smoky Mountain there. And well, and then anyway, OVW, me and Cornette talk. Cornette brings me up. My very first uh, 
night on TV. I beat Sean Casey for the light heavyweight title. Wow. Uh, we, we, we work uh, each other basically for almost a year, and then he ends up turning me heel, and that's when me and Sean Casey start teaming and working with uh, all the WWE guys. Absolutely, and we'll, we'll come back to that part here in just a second. But going back to Jim Cornette, when you would speak with him on the phone, had he been keeping tabs on you with like some of the things you'd done for WCW, like working with Vader or working with Arn Anderson or Brian Pillman in those in those matches? Was he familiar with you from that, or was this just a recommendation from Sean Casey that was able to get you in touch with him? Uh, from what I can recollect, um, Cornette had known me through Tracy Smothers. Mm-hmm. Um, my very first match for Smoky Mountain was in 93. Um, Tracy had brought me up to Cornette. He was wanting to tag team with me. And, uh, he was wanting to bring me in as his little brother. And, uh, he even had me at his house trying on his, uh, Confederate flag trunks and all right. that. And I said, what about the T.S.? On the front, I said, my name's Chris. He said, we'll call you Terry or uh, uh, Timmy Smothers or something. <laughs> you know, so, oh, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's great. Had me all worked up. But, but Cornette said he loved the idea, uh, would love to do that. But he had a vision of using Tracy in a singles run for the Smoky Mountain heavyweight title. So that's why that didn't come to play. But that that's how I really started working for Cornette. And that's when Cornette said, God, you, you look just like and remind me of a young Bobby Eaton. And because Bobby Eaton was a high flyer and mm-hmm. had all the, the space stuff on his tights and all that, that's where he came up with the name Chris Common that I used for just a second. Right. Now, when you get – I know that's like the highest praise you can get. And I know we just – recently lost Bobby, you know, rest in peace, but Bobby Eaton was like one of the unsung heroes, the best of the best. Like what does that do for your ego when you get a compliment like that? Cause that's like highest compliment you can get right there. You know, you end up thinking it's super cool at the end of the day. Then you're like, Oh shit. I means I got to stay on top of my game 24 seven. Then mm-hmm. if somebody thinks I'm as good as he is. So it's almost like a double-edged sword, you know. Absolutely, because uh, now you got to put that because you, you don't want to say, "Well, I'm not as good as that guy," which you know I'm not going to say that I was, but to be compared to him, yeah, it's that's amazing, especially because he was an idol of mine. To be different, it was just some guy. I'm like, I don't even know who he is. They're like, "Well, he's good." Okay, well that's really cool, but to be compared to an actual idol of yours, that that's that's something else. Absolutely. And then when you started with OVW, I know you'd mentioned the um, the WWE guys and all that. You actually got to team with Bobby Eaton, and I know you got to work a tag team match with Randy Orton in that point. So what was that like for you? Was like the inner, like the child, the inner, the inner kid for Chris Michaels? Was he just like bursting at the seams, or was it like I got to keep this cool, man? I'm, I'm tagging with my idol, but I don't want to want him to see me marking out. What was that like? Well, I 
I had first met Bobby through uh, I, me and Wolfie D uh, uh, lived in the same apartment complex in 98 and 99 in Nashville and then uh, Bobby was staying there with another friend of ours named uh, uh, Donnie Renesto mm-hmm. and uh, so we'd all go hang out the pool every day and uh, and stuff so I just became Bobby just became like a buddy to me then right and me and Donnie uh, went on a trip with Bobby to uh, somewhere in Alabama and uh, I think I, we even went that's Bobby lived there I think at the uh, wife or something but anyway we went somewhere took a long road trip with Bobby and Bobby actually sat down watched the tape of mine was critiquing it for me and uh, but uh, when OVW came around uh, it was me and Sean Casey against Bobby Eaton and Randy oh that's and what it was I, I told, told Bobby I'm like you got hit me with the Alabama Jam on his finish. He's like, I don't know. I don't know, Chris. I'm like, come on, man. You got to hit me with the jam. He's like, I'll, maybe. I'll hit something. And when he hit the Alabama jam, it, it was almost like I couldn't sell it. I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Bobby Eaton just hit me with the Alabama jam. And then, of course, he hits me with the spinning neck breaker in that match, which I still do to this day in yep. honor of him, hoping I'd do it justice. But then it was a few years after that, mid-2000s, I did team with Bobby in Murphy, North Carolina, and I made him play the Midnight Express song. Amazing. So, yeah. So when you're you're there and you're getting to work with him and then you're also getting to work with these guys that would go on to become names that you see on TV and multiple-time world champions – are you hands-on in working with them behind the scenes, or are you strictly just in the ring with them, teaching them as you go? Like, what is that process like there? Well, with OVW, uh, especially me and Sean Casey started working with Cena and Orton, Batista and Brock Lesnar and all those guys. Uh, of course, me and Sean would lay out the matches. Mm-hmm. And... Um, me, I would say, what do you want to do today? What do you feel like doing? So I'd get them involved in the match. Instead of being that old vet that just calls everything for them, and, you know, you got this young baby face saying, well, I can do this move. And, you know, the heel's like, uh, shut up, don't talk, kid. So I, I would say, what do you want to get in today? And then I would just place it for them. At right. the beginning of the match and the comeback or whatever. And then, of course, after the match, me, Sean, and Cornette would take them aside, and we would go over what Cornette liked and disliked, and then me and Sean would throw our two cents in on what they could have done, should have done, blah, blah, blah. That makes sense. And you can, I mean, you can tell with these guys now that they've had this much longevity that clearly they took that to heart, but... While you're working with them, um, and you'd been at OVW, and then it became a developmental system for WWE, did you notice any changes in the backstage atmosphere? Was there a political game that started being played with certain people? Was there anything that 
you noticed was a, a shift from one mood to the next when it became a developmental territory? No, I mean, for the most part, everybody there uh, thought they knew that Sean and I already had deals, that we were signed with WWE too. Really? Yeah. And then when that happens, like, and I'll be honest, I, I didn't know that. You guys, did you have contracts at that point, or were they just assuming that you did? No, they just assumed that we did. Now, we were told that that's why we were working with those guys, and so uh, WWF at that time mm-hmm. would be looking at us too. Well, what me and Sean Casey came to the conclusion of is that maybe we were like right there, but then the WCW buyout happened, and it kind of shoved us out the back door. Because they sent a shit ton of guys there that uh, they wasn't doing anything with at the time and made Cornette deal with them. And at that time, uh, which Cornette started leaving us off some TVs. And I'm like, what? we were like, what's going on, Jimmy? He's like, I don't have nowhere to put you guys. I've got to use all these guys now. Which now here in... Uh, some of Cornette's podcast what had happened was is that the whole time he was dealing with Jim Ross so Jim Ross is kind of letting Cornette do his own thing and leaving him alone but right. then when he quit uh, that part of it uh, John Laurinaitis came into play so he starts fucking with Cornette and making life hell for him I've heard that so, so. So that going on and the WCW buyout and all that, it just kind of shoved me and Sean out the back door and there was nothing Cornette could do about it. Which that's unfortunate too, because I mean, you've got two insanely talented guys. I know because I've worked with you both. And just to think that because there's this influx of talent, they can't have room for two guys that have already done so much for them, whether they realize it or not. How did, how did you and Sean take that? Like, how did that, how did y'all process that going forward? Like, were you just ready to give the middle finger to them and keep plugging away on the indies, or was your goal to just, like, keep trying to get back and then get that contract? No, I think at the time that was like, well, okay, we're, we're done with OVW. And, of course, Sean lives in Cincinnati, and I'm where I'm at. Uh, that's when I started knocking on the door about trying to get into TNA because uh, that was around 02. Right. And then... So then, then I started uh, speaking with Burt Prentice again and and uh, that's when I started getting my uh, TNA tryouts and so forth. Did you... How did you feel at that point being over a decade in and working with all these guys that were coming from like ROH and then other guys that had been from WWF at the time and WCW, did you see a lot of familiar faces? Did you see a lot of new talent and maybe felt like nervous because you didn't know like if they were safe to work with? How was that? Uh, you're talking about when I was in TNA? Yes. Um, I don't recall having any fears or anything. How, what happened with TNA? Um, I had a 
tryout match against uh, uh, Corey Williams. Uh huh. And uh, I don't think they were too impressed with it. Uh, but then I ended up getting brought back, and that's when um, I was supposed to work a singles against uh, Rick Michaels, uh, Bill Barron's guy. Yep. And uh, he comes to me and says, he said, I ain't really much up for a singles match. He said, would you have anything against uh, tag teaming with me? I said, well, no, I just want a job, man. Right. And then he said, well, give me a minute. So I guess he goes and talks to Bill Barons, gets it switched to a tag match. Uh, we work uh, a tag team that Kurt Henning had trained called the Kingpins, did a bowling ball gimmick. Mm-hmm. And uh, we tore the house down with them, and that's when they brought us back the very next week, uh, putting us in the tag title picture. Oh, wow. Now, is that around the same time that Kurt Henning was working there as well, or was that before he actually came in? I think it might have been before. Were you hoping that that might kind of get some uh, some attention from him and maybe lead to something down the road where you guys might get to work or he might be able to pull some strings and bring you in somewhere? I, I have anything to do with Kurt Henning. No, I never crossed my mind uh, at that point. Not, not until a few years after that when I finally worked him in a match. But I, I my main goal was just to get a job with TNA. And then how long did you end up working there um, before things started changing and they left the fairgrounds? Were you there the entire time or were you were there, there the talks to bring you down to the impact zone in Florida after that shift happened? What was that time frame like? It was pretty short. Um, you know, that's when they was having the weekly Wednesday pay-per-views. Yep. And... Uh, so after that match with the Kingpins, they bring us back immediately. The, the following Wednesday, uh, me and Rick work, uh, I think it was Ron or Don Harris, when they were one of them was teaming with Sonny Siaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, we slipped over on them. Then we got the match the next week against Storm and Harris for, for the uh, World Tag Team titles. And... Uh, we was told by everybody that night after that match that uh, it was match of the pay-per-view. And uh, then the week after that, they brought us back in a six-way tag, which was uh, uh, Chase Stevens and Cassidy O'Reilly, the Hot Shots, mm-hmm. uh, Storm and Harris, and me and Rick. And then uh, at the end of that match comes... Uh, Brian Lee and Wolfie D, when they've called the church or new church or something. Yeah, that's it. And then uh, right after that, I'm told that Rick Michaels is hurt and cannot wrestle anymore. And so I set out a week or two and I hit them back up. I'm like, what's the deal? Can I'm said I saw I'm sorry that Rick is hurt, but I'm I can still go. Uh, can you not give me a new tag team partner or bring me in a singles? So, uh, at that time, 
God, what was his name that just passed away, the agent guy for them? Bob Ryder? Bob Ryder. Yep, that's Bob it. Ryder said, Bob Ryder said, well, let's bring you in take a look at you as singles. And I'm thinking, take a look at me. You know what I can do. Y'all have seen me. Right. Just, just a few weeks ago. So I do their TV, uh, Saturday morning TV called Explosion, I think. And uh, I'm working one of the Jorge Estrada Flying Elvises. Mm-hmm. And then I'm brought back again, and I work with Abyss. They say he can't read his feet, but he puts me over the best that he could. Right. I'm told, I'm told great job, you did great, blah, 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 each match, and then never heard from him again. So how do, like, how do you process that at that point? Because I know... You'd worked for W. You'd done the matches for WCW. You'd done enhancement matches for the WWF. You'd worked for OVW, and yet now you're doing this. And it seems like they should see the talent that's in front of them, but that contract's never offered. And then you know the tag partner gets hurt, and it's well, let's look at you as a singles guy. How do you how do you deal with that? Like, how do you process that? Like, does it make you just think, man, I'm just ready to toss the boots in a box and just never look at them again, or does it make you want to work harder to kind of just, like, shove it in their face and be like, yeah, this is what you had the entire time? Uh, both goes through your head. You know, it's a it's a battle back and forth. Right. Uh, there, There's two of you. The one wants to quit and just call it a day. The other one wants to keep pushing forward and uh, prove them wrong and show them that, Hey, you just missed uh, a good talent, guys. And absolutely, and the other one wants to quit and walk away. And I used to ask my mom before she got sick and all. I'm like, why haven't I got my contract? What? I'm like, everybody tells me I'm so good. Uh, what's going on? And her answer used to always be, maybe God's saving you from something. I mean, it, that very well could be. I mean, it's 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 hard to argue when you hear something like that because that's a very powerful statement because you see the way things go sometimes with, like, talent cuts from WWE, for example, where they've got this insane list of talents that even some they were using on TV the week before or just main evented a pay-per-view in a heavyweight title match two weeks later, they're gone. I mean, it's all so subjective that maybe that really was the case. Um and I know you had you had kids at home growing up at that point. I've been around Skyler I don't know how many times at this point. Was he getting more time with you, or was he kind of starting to see that you were getting frustrated in that process, or was he like a driving factor that made you want to keep going through all that? No, he was little at that time, and, you know, I think as long as he had his favorite cereal in the morning and his little wrestling men, his toys, he – he was good and taken care of. I try not to let him see um, any grown-up stuff or right things like that. He, you know, um, he would watch wrestling with me, of course. Or then, well, I think by that time he kind of watched it on his own. But you know, he he never knew anything that I was going through personally while being a wrestler right 
And I mean, that, that speaks volumes too to just how great of a father you are that you didn't bring that home to, and you kept you kept it away from the kids because I mean, like anybody that knows you knows how great of a father you are and knows how close you and Skylar are and how much he looks up to you and how great you are with your grandkids and everything. Like the fact that you're an awesome father right there speaks volumes. And then, you know, was a part of you just like wanting to set that example for him? Like, man, I'm still chasing my dream and it's still possible. And I want him to know that that's possible too. Was that ever a motivating factor for you? Yeah, you know, to see him now, uh, he's more my best friend than my son. Right. And uh, uh, we both go to each other for advice. I think me going to him more so than him me, uh, which I'm not proud to say at times, but... uh, But, I mean, that speaks volumes. he, he He will say that, my willingness to never give up and never quit has been a huge inspiration to him. I can understand that. I mean, again, like you said, it, y'all's relationship is so tight-knit that it is like best friends, but, I mean, that's awesome that you guys have each other in that regard, too, to just be able to be like a confidant to him and not only a father and son, but you are best friends. That's that's not something you see with a lot of parents now. It's almost like... Uh, I'm the parent, this is this is the way it is type of thing, and to see a different dynamic to that kind of relationship, I mean, it's amazing. And that actually led to a question from a mutual friend of ours, Chad Stallings, here. Um, and his question is, as a dad, you know, like, what is your biggest accomplishment outside of the ring that makes you proud to, to be a father? What What would that be for you? Well, I guess it would, it would it would be that's a really hard question to answer. That oh, I understand. Now, but besides Skyler and my grandsons at home, um, I've got six young girls to raise, mm-hmm. and not just the gender, you know, things being on a different playing field, but I've got six young girls, all with different attitudes, different ages, different things they're going through. They like different things. I, I guess all I can say is that just, um, they're just giving them your time. Absolutely. Even they 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 understand that you got to work, you got things to do, and. Uh, but when you are there is when they're telling you, like to you, a story that does not pertain to real life and is not important, but to them it is important. Mm-hmm. And for you to make sure that you're really listening to them instead of giving them the, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, that's nice, honey, that's nice, now go play. Right. But to actually sit down and listen to them and give them feedback on what they're telling you. I think goes 10 times farther than what we think it does. Man, I I wish you could see me right now. I'm just, I'm nodding along with everything you're saying. And that, that hit home to me because I didn't have that kind of relationship with my dad growing up. It was, 
pretty much the negatives of everything you just said, you know, if I even saw him at all. So I, everything you just said right there that you try to do for your girls is what I'm trying to do for my two kids now. You know, like one just turned two today and the other just is six and they're all over the place, but you know, you've got your job, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. So just being able to prioritize that time and make it feel special for them, let them know that you actually care and you're not just wrapped up in your phone while you're sitting there with them or just trying to push them along. Man, that that is insanely important to a child's development and their self, you know, like their self-care and their self-worth as well. So, I mean, that's just a an outstanding example of how well you serve as a father to them. So, I mean, that that's just further proof that everything everybody says about you being a dad is just 100% spot on and that's amazing. Yeah, and you know, um, some people get caught up in the uh, whole chasing the dream thing and and all that. I I think I've been blessed with the ability to to have balance, mm-hmm. to be able to live, eat, and breathe wrestling. But then again, set it aside when I need to, and just be dad. And you know, because when you get in. Uh, if you come home after a show, you're still the adrenaline's still going, you're still hyped up a little bit. But then, uh, if they're not in bed, they're up. Like especially my teenage daughter, uh, if she, which she goes to all the shows now. But you know, if you got that one little one that that's uh, that's still up, they want to tell you about their day before they hear about your wrestling match. Absolutely. So, so when you're coming in, I'm coming in walking in the door still kind of in Chris Michaels mode. I've got to switch it to dad because they might need me to tuck them back in bed or Mm -hmm. uh, listen to to them uh, about a cartoon or something. You got to be able to turn it on and off. Right. You you can't brush them aside for that, but they're always going to be there. Wrestling's not. That's the truth. That is the truth. And, in that time frame after the TNA experience, what was your thought at that point? Like even going back to wrestling after that, still working the independence, um, was it just more of more time on the independence, or had you considered looking at outside options? Because I know when I hung up the boots, I started looking at acting and improv, and that's actually been an amazing outlet to feed the addiction of, you know, like you want that adrenaline rush. You want to hear the crowd, you know, like just, you want some kind of reaction. Had you considered going into acting or improv with all your years of experience in wrestling and calling things on the fly like that? Um, I would have loved to have gotten into acting and so forth. I just didn't have an outlet or, uh, or a connection or anything to, to go that route. Um, I would have loved to have done that. Right. I just got a little tiny taste of that just uh, several months ago. I got to be, which I'm still waiting for it to drop. I was uh, in the new Jelly Rolls music video. Oh, nice. Shot in Nashville uh, for one. I don't know if it's going to be a new single or what. And then um, one of the guys who did The Walking Dead with my son uh, hit me up. And he he shoot has a YouTube channel and shoots little little like mini movies or whatever. And I had a part in 
one of his. It's a comedy. Uh, it's called Serial Killers. And it's about this uh, new serial that uh, was so popular back in the day, then it discontinued, now it's back out, and so forth. So, uh, that's supposed to drop in September. Nice. And then and then I'm um, hearing through one of Skyler's other buddies through The Walking Dead that they're going to be looking for extras or whatever for the when they start filming the new Halloween for next year. Oh, wow. And, uh, we're, we're, we're hoping like hell to uh, get that spot. Absolutely. And, I mean, plus, your background for whatever they need, I mean, like, you kind of know the ins and outs without knowing the ins and outs of how that acting business would work. So, I mean, it's that seems like a match made in heaven right there, and I'm sure it's a lot easier on the body as far as that goes, too. Right. I, I, I would love to do something uh, as far as uh, getting into acting and goes. You know, if I got the right connection and all that, I, I would love to uh, try my my hand at that absolutely and then but you know we you know, you know that we can do some stunt stuff we can take a fall and yep uh or we can help choreograph a fight or something absolutely and i mean i've heard of a lot of guys too that have transitioned from that and made work as a stuntman like they've made a comfortable living as a stuntman and they sit on set for like eight or ten hours a day in a comfy trailer they get full catering they get food they go out and do one scene they're done that sounds like a lot better than, you know, hopping in the car for a six, eight-hour drive, working in a stiff ring, and then making that drive back or making it the next day, you know? I mean, it's a lot easier on the body. No, somebody steers me in the right direction, man. I, I would love to uh, try that. Absolutely. Uh, uh, that that music video, uh, I, I dig it. it. There was some fight scenes in it. That's kind of why they used me. Nice. And uh, so... Uh, I did throw my two cents in on a couple little things. Well, maybe if you throw him over here, the camera pick him up over here. And I'm like, man, this is really cool. I love this shit. Absolutely. I mean, it's like a new outlet right there. And then, like you, it's like, like I was saying earlier, it's like the ins out of the business where you, you know it subconsciously, but you don't realize you know it. And then you just start communicating or you start doing it and it just kind of pops into place like that. It, it's amazing how, like, wrestling can teach you so many different things for so many different avenues and outlets in life that you just don't even think about it and it just happens it's a it's a weird thing but it's it's amazing when it starts falling into place like that yeah and you know i've i've made the joke over the years before uh when it comes to subjects like being smart and i'm like well i'm just a dumb wrestler right and but but really and truly you know uh, if you look at it, it uh, me, for one, it, it taught me a lot in life. And and then you really don't realize the impact that you have on people. Absolutely. Because, you know, me, I am still so humble. If it's Like the Mrs., she'll say, uh, uh, I ran into so-and-so at the store and uh, they asked how you was and uh, just they think you're the greatest thing ever, and I'm, like, and I'm still me. They talking about me. I understand. You just don't. You just don't realize the impact that you have, and then it makes you sit back and think, "Man, I wish I was nicer at the picture table tonight. Um, I shouldn't have brought my home life to work and 
Right. You know, it just makes you think twice on how how you treat uh, fans and all that, especially when you're on a small level like this. You know, just just think if you was on the big scale of how many fans and stuff you'd have to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, just to be able to be in that position for somebody to think of little old country boy like me as a is a somebody, man. It speaks volumes. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I'll be 100% honest. It's not just the fans that think that way about you. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's your peers too. It's the guys in the business that look up to you. And this is, I'm going to use this as an easy segue to another question here, but, um, this comes from another fellow wrestler of ours and another listener. His question is like, there are a lot of people who call you their wrestling dad or their mentor, their hero. What does that mean to you when you hear it? And do you think it's important for other torchbearers of the business to know as they carry themselves that way? Like, do you think it's the right way for them to carry them like the way you carry yourself? Like, do you see that as a representation of how you affect other people? Or do you carry, you think they should carry themselves in a way that's a representative of the wrestling business as a whole that, you know, like the other boys should look up to, the fans should look up to, like, do you think it's more important to just be the flag bearer or do you think it's more important to just be Chris and like you said, be kind to everybody and make sure they're, you know, like you're being nice to them so that they have that good experience. What do you think that means? I Well, first and foremost, I think bottom line, just treat people as you want to be treated. 100%. Um, I've seen veteran guys in the locker room walk in and right off the bat, they're telling their name dropping. They're telling you where they've been, what you should be doing and this and that and the other. Now, um, I always tell people, they'll say, did you watch my match? I'm like, no, I did not. Um, next time ask me to, and I will. And I will gladly give you feedback mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I'm busy doing my own thing. Every now and then I'll peek out and take a look at a match. But, you know, I'm trying not to be seen by the fans, depending on where where you're peeking in from. Right. And all that. Uh, but uh, all you have to if you want to know where I've been and what I've done, I'll, I will tell you. But I'm not going to come in acting like this big shot or this know-it-all and start telling everybody what they should be doing. That's just not me. I'm quiet. I'm shy as a person in real life, and I just do my thing. Uh, I, I'm there to, to do my thing and to have a good time and enjoy it, and I want everybody else to. Uh, the whole wrestling dad thing, I've always made the joke, I'm still used to being called kid by by the my veterans. Hey, kid, won't you go do this? Hey, kid, you did good. Or, hey, kid, you should have done that. And then it seems like overnight, all everything in the middle, overnight, now I got people calling me dad. I'm like, what happened to that time? Because uh, I remember the very first time somebody told me they watched me on TV when they were a kid. I'm like, well, how old are you? Right. And it, it just blows me away. Um, yes, I've gotten uh, fortunate and blessed 
to do some pretty cool things that other people think is really cool and all that. But I'm no better than anybody else. I I was just at the right place, right time. And same goes for the guys I wish I was in their spot. They were at the right place, right time. Doesn't mean they're better than me. Doesn't mean that I'm better than whoever calls me dad. I was just at the right place at the right time. Very, I mean, that's that says a lot right there about your character, too. I mean, just very humble, very gracious, and, I mean, you can tell that you're grateful for the opportunities, and just, I think that's a big part of why people look up to you, too, is just your personality. Like you said, you're introverted behind the scenes, but when you go through the curtain and the red light's on, completely different person, but, again, I think it's just your personality that draws all these people in that, makes you so relatable to us and makes, you know, makes us want to look up to you. And that's, I think that's the cool part right there. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. Probably around the time I first met you was about 2007. I know you were originally supposed to train me, but you were no longer at the USWO around the time I started down in Nashville. And as I got into the business, I actually got to meet you and got to, got to know you better but during that time, I noticed there was like a string of injuries from probably about 2008 up to 2011-ish, where you had had multiple concussions. You had had a detached retina, which I think was originally what had made you want to retire. And I think you'd even had a torn shoulder or a torn lat muscle in your back in 2008, and you'd still worked through that before you eventually got it taken care of. But with, you know, with injuries like that adding up and, you know, even with the retirement, you did eventually come back. But, I mean, was there ever a thought of just like, man, I think it's time to just call it quits. I've had a good run and I'd rather go out on a high note than, you know, than end up just a, a former shell of myself. What what was that like for you during that time? And how did you like come to the decision like, shit, I'm still motivated. I want to go. Like, how did that work for you? Well, it was around 03 I was dealing with the concussion thing. Wow, uh, that far back. Where a neurologist told me that um, the, the MRI goes five millimeters deep into the brain. Like, if you take out a boxer's brain, mm-hmm. visibly with the naked eye, see uh, damage. Oh, yeah. But then, then there's the rest. He said, you definitely have brain damage. And he said, uh, if you continue to take licks to the head, you're going to lose your ability to learn or even worse. He said, I suggest you find another line of work. But I mean, tell me what doctor in their right mind is going to suggest that you keep being a professional wrestler, a guy who gets in a wrestling ring and beats himself up for a living. Yeah, you might Ain't have to... nobody in their right mind going to suggest we continue to do that. Absolutely. But um, I was suffering from post-concussion syndrome. Um, I think total diagnosed, I've had about 14 now. Uh, I suffered from post-concussion syndrome, and at that point in time, if I wanted to wrestle, I couldn't. Right. Uh, every time I took I took a step, it's feeling like I was being cracked in the head with a baseball bat. Ugh. Uh, I would have dizzy spells. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I couldn't even mow the yard. Uh, I just sat there and stared out the window for the longest. Wow. 
I, I was ill and irritable, uh, but I was still involved. I was kind of still booking uh, wrestling for Mickey in uh, Columbia, Tennessee at the Grand Slam building. Mm-hmm. And I was playing a commissioner role, and I think I had a student at that time. So I was still around it. But uh, after about five or six months, I decided I was going to have one last match and be done. And I ended up working this angle with uh, Chase Stevens and Andy Douglas. Uh, they were beating up this one guy. I forgot his name get for the life of me, and I'm sorry. But um, did an angle where they're beating him up or something, and I said, I'm going to find him a new tag team, uh, a tag team partner for you guys next week. And then I said, it's me. So the place popped huge. We had the tag match, and I felt perfectly fine. I'm like, I ain't done. So I start back. Well, I'm doing fine with my head and all that. Well, come around 2009, uh, I went, it was early to, might have been latter part of 2008. I did the lat thing. Mm-hmm. I went to shoot a guy off the ropes and I felt a pull. I thought I tore my tricep at first, but Oof. it was my uh, latissimus, I think you call it. Yep. Lat muscle. Biggest muscle in and, the back, yeah. Well, I went and got it seen about, and uh, they said they could surgically repair it, but uh, in my case, I'd be okay if I did. So I just kind of let it go, and I think if I was to stand still for you, you could see where it was torn before. Mm-hmm. But then um, then I had a problem with my wrist. I went and got it seen about, and they asked, when did you break your wrist? And I said, I didn't know my wrist was broken. So they did surgery on my wrist Whew. in 2009, February 2009, then seven days later, they did surgery on my left elbow, which didn't fix a thing. Uh, they decompressed a nerve, and uh, they were telling me, hey, it's about time you hang this shit up. So I had, it was a Tuesday night is when Mitch Ryder, God rest his soul, mm-hmm. was running New Albany, Indiana. Yep. Um, I had what was supposed to have been my very last match against Flash Flanagan that night. I mean, I came through the curtain. Uh, uh, I threw myself down on the floor, and Scholar held me, and I bawled like a baby and went right immediately into surgery for my wrist that very next morning. Wow. And then seven days after that, surgery on my left elbow. So I sat at home. And, um, I, uh, the doctor that I had at that time was pretty easy on handing out the medicine. Mm. So, uh, at that time, my, I've got my left hand casted up, a uh, big sling thing on my left elbow and which with two different surgeries, I've got all the pain pills I could want. Yeah. I'm on nerve. I'm on nerve medicine. I'm on antidepressants. And here I am. I'm still in my thirties. And I'm thinking I am too young for this. 
and I'm sitting around watching wrestling videos and I'm taking all this medication and then I'm drinking on top of it too. Uh. And uh, I'm like, I'm becoming what I preach against. And um, this ain't good. So there was one morning I woke up, the sun was shining. I'm like, damn, looks pretty outside. I'm going for a walk. And then I take off walking. Uh, long story short, I kicked out of that. After those two surgeries, I was back in the ring in two months. Wow. And what's what's absolutely insane is I think we've actually had the same surgeries because uh, last summer I had, the I think, the same procedures you did on my wrist and my left elbow. And I know, like, you can't do anything with that arm or – let alone, like, everything else you were going through. So I know it gets to you because, like, everyday things just become a struggle. But yeah. when you're in that kind of that dark spot, like, that dark place there, do you feel like, I know we talked about it earlier in the show, like, that, that nitpicking and that, that self-doubt and criticism, do you feel like that came in and just amplified and ate away at any confidence or positivity you would have had during that time? Like, man, I'm finally getting this fixed and I'm going to be back to 100% again, and then that self-doubt and that negativity crept in and just kind of sabotaged the whole thing? Do you think that played any part in it? All the negativity came from when that doctor's telling me that I need to hang it up, and then, of course, you got people around you in your ear telling you, see, you're having surgery on this and surgery on that. Are you going to keep going till you end up in a wheelchair? Just, just call it a day. Right. You, you've done, you've done good. So, don't beat yourself up about it. Just be glad you still have your health and you can walk, walk around and still play with your kids. I under, I understand so, that. Yeah. And so you listen to all that, but then, uh, with all the medication and and all that, uh, my thought was, is I got to get back in the ring or I'm gonna die. And it's, like I said, it's an addiction just doing that in itself, too. So it kind of just, like, it's a self-repeating, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like you're just, you're feeding the beast to get that next fix. Because that that's really, like, all you've known. That's all you've wanted to do. And now it's being taken away from you. And it's not on your terms. It's on somebody else's. Whereas if you may have been able to make the decision and say, yeah, I'm ready to hang it up, it may not have been that much of a struggle. Does that sound like that may be true? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And then here comes 2011. I detached the retina and nearly lose my left eye. Yep. I seriously really thought that that was it because they said if I take another lick to the head hard enough that um, it'll detach it again and they might not be able to fix it. But um, I sat around for five months and... Um, I decided, uh, I think I was actually talking with my son at that time. I'm like, I'm getting back in the ring. And, uh, somehow that, that same doctor's office, cause I tried to get my Kentucky license mm-hmm. and they wouldn't grant me one unless somebody from my, eye, the place where I got my eye surgery done, gave them the okay to give me a license. Well, they made the phone call and somebody from that office gave them the okay to license me. 
Wow. And um, to this day, I have not had one problem since. Um, it was about two years ago. Um, I see the same eye doctor. Mm-hmm. And he said, I wanted to tell you, by the way, um, he said, you are the only patient that I have dealt with that I have seen with a retina detachment as bad as yours, uh, heal back and with corrective lens have 20, 20 vision. Wow. And I, I said, um, I said, well, God must love me. He said, no, God must love wrestling. I could believe both. I could very easily believe both. Well, just amazing. up until recent, it's been a couple months. Um, I did go to uh, to the eye doctor to, you know, uh, order more contacts and stuff. And there was a problem with my left eye. Mm. Uh, my vision's gotten worse in it. But uh, I went and saw my surgeon that did the surgery on me. But it doesn't have anything to do with my retina or anything. I have a cataract on my left eye that eventually I'm going to have to get taken care of. But right now it's not that bad. And uh, they did some laser work on both eyes. But still, to this day, I'm fine. That's a blessing right there, too. But that's some scary stuff either way. Yeah, and then to fast forward to um, my shoulder surgery last year. Yep. um, That was the first and only time that I said I didn't say that I'm done or anything. My my main goal was to have the shoulder surgery, get back in shape, and get right back in there. And I remember, like, just seeing all the posts you made about that, too, were just 100% coming back stronger, you know, there was motivation and there was like some positivity behind it. So it was a definite night and day difference from what it had been just a few years before to then. And I mean, even going back to a couple of the shows I had done with you in 2010, when you were running Franklin up there at the boys and girls club, there was like a string of two months where one month you got a concussion. And then the next month you were actually working a tables match with Sigmund and the table wouldn't break. And when it finally did, you got like a major gash up your arm and both of those required you to have to go to the ER immediately like following that match. And just at that point, it's like a matter of, uh, because everybody was just so afraid because I think you had told us the doctor said, you know, if you get, again, if you get one more concussion, like this is it, like you, you should hang it up right here. But then again, you know, like, like a trooper, there you are the next month and you get hurt again, like... Ah oh, man, I can't even imagine how that, how you just kept powering through all that. That's just a testament to your your mental will and strength right there. Well, that leads to the title of my book, Indestructible. One hundred percent. And what what actually? I know you. Everybody's always told you like you've had all these insane stories. You've had these bucket list matches that all these other guys would kill for. But, like, what led you to finally pulling the trigger and and writing the book? I was talking to my lawyer on the phone. Um, It's always good as a pro wrestler to have a lawyer. 100%. No matter what. But anyway, um, who happens to be or was Tracy Smothers' lawyer. 
And um, we were chit-chatting, and he asked if I would gotten a copy of Tracy's book and read it yet. And I said, no, I haven't got the chance. And he said, well, I'll get you one. And I just made the joke. I said, boy, could I write one? Ha, ha, ha. And he said, well, I can make it happen for you. And I said, no shit. Wow. And I'm like, are you serious? And it led from there. Took me about a year to finish writing it. He told me to take notebook and pen and just start writing. And then I got with uh, John Cosper, the the publisher and independent author who made it happen. Got with him and I added some chapters and um, sent him the pictures and then sent him my, my copy and then he rewrote it and sent it back to me and I made whatever changes I wanted and it, and then bam, here it is. And I, I know I got my copy. I think, you know, I saw the post and I was like, shit, I didn't even know he was writing a book, but had it up on Amazon, ordered it that same day, two days later, there it is. And I mean, I can't recommend this book enough. So I'm going to put a link for it in the show notes. And then I'm also going to put one for Tracy's book in there as well. But what, like, what's the feedback that some of the boys have given you on the book or any fans that have gotten the book? Has it been positive? Like, have they loved hearing these stories? Have they been like, there's no way that happened? Like, what, what's your feedback been on it? Well, first, I didn't tell a soul about it because I didn't, I wasn't for sure the entire time if it was going to come through or not. Right. And I was trying to be positive, and I'm mm-hmm. like, well, even if this doesn't happen, I have all this stuff on notebook paper about my career and life, so it's something I can leave the kids. Right, exactly. So I'm like, it's still a plus even if I don't get a book or get it published or anything. I've got all this here in a notebook. We'll keep it safe for the kids to get out one day and look at and read. Absolutely. I mean, like, Again, like you said, there's there's a positivity to it where, you know, even if it doesn't get get published, you have something that you can leave for your kids that you may not have gotten to share with them. So that that's absolutely awesome in itself. But um just going back to it because you mentioned him, I know we lost Tracy, you know, within the last year, but he's been so instrumental to a lot of people and I know you called him your wrestling dad just what did he mean to you, not only like inside the ring and out, like in the business and out of the business, but what did he mean to you as a person? And I know everybody took his loss differently, and that was a hard loss for everyone to bear. But how did that? How did that impact you? Well, you know, like I said in my book, that you know I can tell you how how close I was to him and all that, but. He was so giving and so loving and lovable mm-hmm. that there's thousands of others that could share the same emotions and feelings about him that I do. Absolutely. And have and have just as many stories because he was just so easy to get close to and and feed off of. Uh, He's the reason why I do 
influence a lot of the things that I do, not only in wrestling, but outside of wrestling. It's because when I was on the road with him from 2000 to 2002, you know, I did everything as he did it. Absolutely. So I thought that's the way he's supposed to do it. And, you know, he was my, my veteran, my, my mentor. So if Tracy does it, then I should do it. I get. Or I should do it do it this way. He does it this way, so I should do it this way. Absolutely. And I mean, that's it, the best person to look our, at for it, too. Our thought process was the same as far as being a, a person and an individual and all that. You know, Tracy did like 10 times more in the wrestling business than I did, and he was still just as humble. He, and that's what, you know, treat people as you want to be treated. I get all that from Tracy. All my heel stuff in the ring, I got from Tracy. And man, um, he was one of the best at that, too. So you had, like, the absolute best person to learn from. Yeah, I mean, but there's so many other people who could tell the basically the same story, just a different town or different incident. Absolutely, and the, I he's, think he's influenced so many people. The one thing that really stuck out to me about him is, I, I know he was open about how many concussions he'd had, but it didn't matter. Like if he'd met you once, because I think I met him my third week into training. He actually showed up and did a seminar, and he learned my name. But then I didn't meet him again until maybe like two or three years later when he was booked on another Tony Falk show. And it just, it blew my mind that he remembered who I was and we'd only met for like two hours. But then again, like you said, so many other people have that same story where you see him on one show maybe in Springfield, Tennessee, then you see him up in St. Louis and he remembers exactly who you are and it's just like, it speaks to how much he valued people on their own and just like the positivity that he had around it that drew other people in too. Yeah, and... uh I was on the phone with him right as he got sick and uh, he at first the the symptoms he was having he was thinking he had something wrong with his gallbladder mm-hmm. and uh, you know then the rest of the story goes he ended up having cancer or whatever then he said he beat it and uh uh, checked my messages with him. I had spoke to him, uh, well, through Messenger. He said they were carrying him to Indianapolis, and uh, he said, I love you. As he, he spells out my name, C-C-C-H-H-H-H-R-R-R-I-I-I-S-S-S-S. Yep. And then... Then at the day passed at five o'clock that morning, my lawyer tried to call and I'm like, he don't normally call me at five o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, maybe I was a butt dial or something. Cause usually if he doesn't get me, he will text right away and say, call me. And then he tried calling around nine o'clock. And then, it, then at that time, Derek Neal had sent me a message and said, I don't know how true this is, but, and then 
told me, and then right after that is when my lawyer called me and confirmed it. Mm. And that's that's the worst feeling in the world because I remember, I think Derek Neal also told Seven, and then Seven told me like we were we were at work together, and he told me, and that was just. Uh, I know we didn't know him as long as you or some of these other people, but I mean, like, just man, that guy just that was like the ultimate gut punch or low blow, however you want to describe. It. Like, there's just no words for it. It's like you know something was taken out of the world, and there's really no way to describe that. It was just horrible, and it was well before his time too. Well, any success that uh, you consider that I've had in wrestling, I credit to him I mean he came to that school and worked out with me and even as he went for his break in WCW as a southern boys he mm-hmm. still kept my phone number he still kept up with me and still got me bookings right one started getting me my Tennessee bookings um, outside of Dale Man was all through Tracy and then from from 2000 to 2002 I'm on the road with him every single day. That's what kills me with some of these young guys like, yeah, I just did the loop, and they had three days in a row. Well, back then, me and Tracy was sometimes booked every single day of the week for like three, four months straight without a day off. And to me, that's what I call a loop. I would agree. And I mean, like, and that actually ties into another question we had where – it uh, it seems like it's so much easier to to break into wrestling these days, and just like any Joe schmo that has money or can pay can get into it. But I mean, what would you say is like the biggest downfall from that? Like, why do you think everybody wants to be a wrestler now? Is it just a bragging thing, or is it just? Do you think there's actually a passion there, but because somebody's telling them, hey, yeah, don't worry about that. I'll just, I'll go ahead and train you, but not train you properly. Do you think that they're just kind of being strung along and not knowing any better? I just think the way it's been portrayed at every Tom, Dick, and Harry thinks it's easy to do. How it's been portrayed is that, you know, you get these actors and um other celebrities getting involved, you know, Shaquille O'Neal just took a bump through a table and, and, and like, uh, just wrestling itself, uh, the way AEW does, uh, especially them, even fought WWE some for some of the stuff they do. And now, now like, uh, an outside person, uh, when they say, uh, pro wrestling, like, yeah, I'd like to go through one of them tables. I, I could go through one of those tables. Oh, no, you wouldn't. And, like, like they think that that's, that's all wrestling consists of. It's just the glitz but, and the glamour. It's, it's just a th- thought process that anybody can get in there and do it. Right. And, I mean, that's... It's that easy. And that's one of the things we've always been told, too, is if it looks like the guy buying the ticket can do it, why should, you know, why should somebody buy a ticket to do it? So that kind of kills any credibility at that point too yeah well now now it's just full of kids right that 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 manliness that that tough guy 
uh, persona is gone. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking the bodybuilder looking guys. I'm talking like Dick Slater, Dick Murdoch. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, even Arn Anderson, he didn't have a body, but all these guys, you knew if you got into a bar fight with them, you was getting your ass beat. Absolutely, they look like they just look like somebody that would punch you if you looked at them wrong. Yeah, that that persona is gone. Now it's uh, freaking kids sitting around on their uh, telephones playing video games. Absolutely, and, and they just make a joke and a mockery out of it. It's how many flips you can do. Right. It ain't two. It ain't two guys getting in there getting it uh, for a heavyweight title anymore. It's more about the uh, the oohs and the ahs than it is about actually winning or making it look like a an actual competitive endeavor or a struggle between two athletes. It's a Stewart from Mad TV. Look what I can do. Yes, I love the reference, but yeah, that's 100% it. You do one flip, here's two or three more, and the crowd doesn't know which one to respond to. It, it takes it out, whereas something just as simple that anybody in the crowd, like a, a kick to the knee or a thumb to the eye that is easily relatable because you know it hurts, that's more effective. And that's one thing that, is that something like that you've been able to communicate as you've been coming in as a guest coach at the WWE Performance Center? Or do you see a lot of these same issues with like, they want to do the flippy athletic stuff as opposed to telling a story with what they're doing in the ring? Or do they, are there people there that actually like get that process and understand where you're coming from? Or is it just kind of a mix of both? What I saw that last trip, um, it's, it's just a lot of not second guessing. This is like, I don't know, triple digit guessing that they have so many people in their ear right. telling them to do this that way. Then you got somebody else telling them to do the same thing a different way. And, you know, then they, then they get to where they're like, well, should I step in the ring with my left foot or my right foot? They, they question everything. And, I was, I for one was just trying to tell them, do what your guy that 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 coaches you the most tells you to do. I'm like, just wing it, man. Just just wing it. Do what feels right to you. If you're doing something totally wrong, they'll tell you. Absolutely. But but, but just stress less, and just do do what you know to do. And I know that's that's one of the hardest things too, and. We're going to start winding it down here, but I'm going to ask you a follow-up question on that. What um, what was it like for you when you kind of figured out how to stop stressing and how to stop second-guessing? And what kind of advice would you give to someone who is guilty of being their own worst critic and just having a hard time giving themselves credit for the good things they've done, like you talked about earlier when you go back and watch your matches? Is there anything you could say to someone like that to help them stop being their own worst enemy? You know, I I didn't really have to go through that because um, I, I kind of, you know, like I told you, I did as Tracy did. Mm-hmm. And I and I felt if I was doing what he was doing, then I was doing it right. And right. I was doing okay. That makes sense. So... I didn't really beat myself up unless I just totally flubbed a match or flubbed a spot in a match. I never really beat myself up too much. 
Um, you know, every single match, if I was to sit back and watch it, there's always going to be, well, I should have done this there, or I could have done this there. Mm-hmm. Or if I did a promo, like I just did a promo the other night, and I'm like, oh, man, I should have said this, I should have said that. And, you know, it was a promo that I just winged off the top of my head. I wasn't really ready. I'm oh, I'm like, oh, you ready? Uh, okay, yeah. And start filming. And then I just rattled something off. And then, of course, afterwards, I'm like, man, I should have said this, should have said that. I think anybody that's good, like I was telling you in our messages, uh, like being a good parent, at the end of the day, no matter what you did that day, you still go to bed thinking, man, I could have done that better. I should have handled that situation with my son or my daughter better. Uh, but I think that's what makes you good if if you still think you could do better. Absolutely. And I know this is something that I personally struggle with, too, is that always knowing you could do better, but then I know sometimes, too, that I've just got to take that step back, take a breath, and just be like, look, you did your best. That was good. Life's going to keep going on. So don't don't stress on that too much and just go on to the next thing. But like you said, that still drives you to do better so that you don't repeat that in the future and you make that time for the kids or you make sure you knock something out of the park when you're doing a promo like that or you're in an acting scene. Like you just, It gives you that drive to want to do better, not only – in that field, but just in every aspect of your life, because that kind of pulls it all back in together. Well, yeah, I'm sure some of the greats, I'm sure if they watch their match back, that Ric Flair would say, Oh, 100%. Could have done, done that there. That's the beauty of it. That's pro wrestling. It's yep. supposed to be pretty that, you know, really and truly it's not, it's a competition, a fight. It ain't supposed to be flawless and, uh, just so smooth and which some things are and some things go together smooth and right. flawless, but you know, it's supposed to be a struggle, a, a struggle, a fight is not pretty. Exactly. And there's room for error. That's, that's what I was trying to tell a lot of them down there at the performance center. I'm like, your guy, your coach may tell you one way that do what he tells you to do. If he's in charge of you, then you do how he says it. I go, but this coach over here in this other ring may tell you different. I said, yes, there's a few key things in pro wrestling that are black and white, but I think there's a lot. It's more gray than that because there are a million different ways to get to the same outcome that you're looking for. Absolutely, and I mean, I think that that sums it all up right there. Is that there's no one right set path. There's it's like a jungle gym. It's not just straight up the ladder. You can go left, you can go right, you can zigzag, but you'll end up at the same destination if you're persistent and patient and you just have enough confidence in yourself to keep your eyes and ears open and keep progressing and know that you're going to get to that spot. Right. I think we're going to go ahead and bring it on home here. I got two more questions for you, and one is uh, from Jimmy Street, and this is just... uh, it can be one of your matches or it can be one that you've watched. What would you say is your favorite match of all time? Uh, that's, that's a tough one. I know. There's so many. I, I guess I would have to say since it 
led to uh, my wanting to get in the business and just really being uh, caught up in it and all that, I would have to say the Flair Steamboat from Nashville and Wrestle War 89. That's a, you can't go wrong with that choice right there. And then last question I've got here is kind of come from Matthew, and he's asking, as someone who's wrestled virtually everywhere, where do you see your place? Where does Chris Michaels fit in in this new renaissance of wrestling that's currently going on with WWE, AEW, um, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor? Where do you see yourself fitting in in the current landscape? Like as far as my style or where if one of them or who would if any of them were going to call me to come work for them who would i see calling you know what i mean let's make that an a uh part a part b so let's go with the style first because i know just from working with you personally your style works with just about anybody they've put you up against could you see that working well with any of the major companies right now is there anyone that you think that that would just be like a damn that would be a great match to have well, you know, even with AEW, there's some guys there. I'm like, man, I would love to have a match with them. I think I could have a good match with them. Um, like, I know um, everybody is um, really heavily criticizing Chris Jericho at the moment and the shape he's in and the type of matches he's having and all that. But I know if he was the baby face and I was the heel – I could still make this guy look like a million dollars. I don't doubt that at all. And that'd be one that, God, you'd be dumb to miss. And, of course, I would I would love to have a match with Cody Rhodes. Uh, maybe that hangman guy they got. Yeah, Adam Page. Absolutely. Uh, which I, I don't I don't watch a lot of it. I, I don't sit down and watch the show, so I don't know who everybody is. Right. I just see clips on social media. So that's how I know them. Um, I know that tag team that just came there that just did that table spot with Sting. Yes. They were in, they were in NXT. Uh, I knew those boys before, and... Um, I was a uh, agent for one of their matches there. Those are good boys, and they're good in the ring. They're totally old school. Uh, if I had a good partner, I, I could tear the house down with those two guys. 100%. I mean, like, the landscape is wide open, and that's, like, one of the coolest things right now is there's so many different ways to – or so many different match combinations that you could have. And with your style and your experience, I mean, you could literally go out there with anybody – and have a great entertaining match, whether you're the heel, whether you're the baby face, it, it doesn't matter because you've got the skill set, you've got the mentality to to make the match work and make it entertaining. And I think that's what is so awesome about it is that you could literally you're the puzzle piece that could probably fit in just about anywhere if somebody were to call. And I think that's the awesome thing. So does that keep you motivated knowing that if that were to happen, there's all these unlimited possibilities there? Um, right now, at this stage in the game, um, I'm not, you know, before, I'm like, I always before, I got to have match of the night. Right. No matter, no matter what show I was on. Uh, 
I got to be the main event guy, the, the, the star, the, the guy everybody's watching. But now at this stage in the game, um, I'm just trying to enjoy it more. Absolutely. Just being blessed to still be able to climb in the ring. Um, I don't, I don't have to have match of the night now. Yes. Do I want to have a good solid match? Of course I do. Absolutely. But I don't have to have match of the night. And if I don't, I'm not going to get upset about it. I'm just thrilled and blessed that I can still do it. And, um, you know, when that time or if that time comes where I got to step up my A game, then I'll be ready to do so. And I don't doubt that at all. Well, Chris, man, I really just want to thank you for taking almost two hours with me here tonight just to not only sit and chat and catch up, but, man, just tell more of your story that after knowing you for, gosh, 14 years now, there were still things I didn't know. And then opening up about some of the things that you've, you know, you've gone through during that time that we may not have seen, you know, when we were out drinking a beer or we were out till 6 a.m. in the morning at Miss Kelly's in Nashville or something like that. You know, there's just so many things that we've never really talked about. So I really appreciate you coming on here and just opening yourself up and being so expressive to those stories. Absolutely. And uh, I remember that night or that morning. That was great. Good time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I could do that now, but man, that was a blast nonetheless. Right. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and call it here, and I'm sure we're going to have Chris on for a part two at some time in the near future. But for now, this is Flynn, and for Chris Michaels, I just want to say thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, man. All right. We're winding it down here, and I just want to thank you all for tuning in once again. Chris, I want to give you a huge shout out and thank you so much for being so generous with your time here tonight. Thank you for being so open about your story, your family life, your ups, your downs, and how you overcame what you did. Thank you so much. And if you have any questions, feel free to follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. I'll have the links for those in the notes as well. It can be for me or it can be for one of our upcoming guests. So until next week, this is Flynn, and I know you hear me. Hey, this is Jimmy Street, host of the Live and in Color with Wolfie D podcast. Hear the life and times of professional wrestler Wolfie D. From his times in the territories with PG-13 to his times in WWE, ECW, WCW, TNA, and more. Nothing is off limits and nothing will be held back. Available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast formats.